basketball prepared me for the business room, no question about it. You know, if it wasn't for basketball, I, I don't think I could be the CEO that I am today. Welcome to View from the Top, the podcast. That was Magic Johnson, the American retired professional basketball player and businessman. Johnson came to campus as part of View from the Top, a speaker series where MBA students sit down to interview top leaders from around the world. Here, Johnson talks about his pivot from the court to the boardroom and how a love of competition drives him to over-deliver. You're listening to View from the Top, the podcast. All right, well then let's start with sports. Let's start with basketball. Okay. Many people may not realize that you actually began preparing for your second career, your career in business, while you were still in the MBA. Can mm -hmm. you tell us what that preparation looked like and what motivated you? Well, first, we, we have to understand that uh, the same principles really apply from being a, a basketball player as well as a CEO. When you think about focus, strategy, discipline, uh, so I'm still that same guy that has those same principles as a CEO. And, and what I was doing as a basketball player first, and also a competitor, because I hate to lose at anything, right? <laughs> like my wife encouraged me to play my daughter one-on-one. -on -one. You know, when we were about, she was about 15, 16 years old. You know, I play her. You know, we go to 10. <laughs> I let her get to nine. <laughs> and then I got a crusher. <laughs> and if I was playing my mother, I would let her get to nine and a half. And then I'd crush her too. Um, I, I love winning. Um, and I took that same competitive spirit to the boardroom as well. Um, I'm a perfectionist. So I was a perfectionist as a basketball player. I did the drills over and over and over again. And even today, I'm a perfectionist. And I want to do everything the right way. So when you think about principles of being an athlete or a basketball player, it's the same thing as a CEO. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm a guy who's going to get there early. You know, I'm not about, I'm a professional. Today they said, okay, about 1130. Well, you know, I got on campus at 5 to 11. <laughs> I just sat at the chapel for a half hour waiting. But that's who I am. You know, and so I think that I was preparing. What I did was I asked Dr. Buss, I said, my dream is not just to win championships, but I want to become a businessman after uh, my basketball career with the Lakers. And he took me up on, his, my, uh, up on his wing and became my mentor, and one of my many mentors. And so uh, he taught me Laker business, opened the books up to me, let me see how the Laker business was being run day to day. Um, then I took, and I was one of these guys that was crazy, so I called the PR man from the Lakers and I said, look, I want to know all the people who sit on the floor, I want to know their phone numbers and names. So I cold called 20 people and said, will you go to lunch with me? And they said, yeah. So. <laughs> surprise, surprise. You know, I took advantage of my platform, trust me. <laughs> and so uh, I picked their brain about business, what made them successful. And uh, I incorporated into my own uh, style and uh, so while I was playing basketball yes I was getting ready but make no mistake about it I was hundred and fifty percent in with being a Laker and being the best basketball player I could be in the offseason I was preparing for this life after basketball but I was a crazy basketball player much like I am CEO because when you're trying to prove people wrong, first they said I wouldn't be able to play point guard at 6'9". So I had to prove them wrong. Then they said I couldn't go from the basketball court to the boardroom. And it's been my pleasure proving them wrong again. And so um, I'm a guy who 
goes all the way in. And I love uh, doing what I'm doing. But basketball prepared me for the business room, no question about it. You know, if it wasn't for basketball, I, I don't think I could be the CEO that I am today. I think you touched on some good lessons that you learned in transitioning your career. There's a lot of people who come to business school hoping to pivot out of one career and right. into another, basketball pun intended. Right. And <laughs> what would be... Okay. What, <laughs> what would be your top piece of advice for them? Well, first of all, you got to take your ego out of it. See, what made me a great basketball player wouldn't make me a great CEO. I have to understand because I didn't know business. So that's why those mentors were so important to me. And then somebody finally is going to say no to you. Mm. <laughs> um, and then you have to have a thirst for knowledge, right? And so that's why I was meeting with so many people, because I was hungry for knowledge. And I wasn't shy about asking questions. And so I think for me, it was just making sure I got in the right rooms with the right people, make sure I got enough uh, experts in terms of being my mentors, that experts in business, and then, um, and then make sure that then I apply what I learned from them. A lot of times athletes, uh, we're such in our own world that we forget that, you know, after we retire, you're still young and you, you have a whole life to live. You know, I retired in my 30s and so I still had a lot of life and a lot of living to do. And so I'm so happy that my, I knew my second life was gonna be in business. I didn't think it was gonna get to this level. I never thought in my wildest dreams it would get to where I am today. But I knew I wanted to be a businessman and I, would, I was gonna do everything in my power to become a successful one. Well, you did become very successful. And I wanna play back to earlier in your career you had an early partnership with Starbucks mm -hmm. in around 1998. You opened 125 stores for them in low-income neighborhoods. Right. It was the first time Starbucks had done something like that. Mm -hmm. Your stores were more successful than the national average. Mm -hmm. You don't own those anymore, but can you talk about how important that deal was in your career? Well, let me go back before that one because the, the actually the Magic Johnson Theater set up that one. And I did my homework and research and found out minorities were the number one group of people going to the movies at that time, but we didn't have no theaters built in our community. And I said, wow, if we're the number one group of people going to the theater, or to the movies, if I build them, they will come. The demand was already there. <laughs> yeah. So I just, I met with the Sony execs and told them, look, the growth of your business have to be through urban America. We got an unbelievable spending power. Look at our spending power right now. African-Americans, a trillion dollar spending power. Latinos, another trillion dollar spending power and growing. And I'm sitting there saying, wow, that's a lot of disposable, disposable income. And that could make my business be, become successful uh, very quick. And so uh, they said, let's do it. I put up half the money. They put up half the money. And the first thing people said, oh, no way. They're going to tear it up. They're going to. Uh, graffiti gonna be all on the walls and what happened was my first theater in Crenshaw in LA was in the top 10 highest grossing theaters in the nation and what we had to do was tweak the, the concession stand a little bit because <laughs> minorities we're a little bit different than everybody else so we grew up on Kool-Aid so I had to have <laughs> strawberry, grape, orange, <laughs> Soda, we just don't, we don't drink just Coke. Yeah. So. Now, the reason I said that, because my per caps was some of the highest in the industry. Wait a minute. So if I keep that Coke just in there and my, con my customer base don't drink Coke, I'm not successful, right? Then I had a spicier hot dog. 
some jalapeno peppers. That, that was the first time in theater history that ever happened, right? And so I was able to understand my customer base and over-deliver to them. And I'm going to use that word all the time. And you students out there, I want you to write that word down. And that's over-deliver. Because if you're going to be in business, and especially today's marketplace, you got to over-deliver to the consumer. Or guess what? They're going to leave you that fast. I have over-delivered to my customer base for 30 years. That's why I have the number one brand in urban America. And so if I had just kept Coke in there, not the hot dog change, it would have been a problem. Let me tell you a little quick story about how they looked at me as a basketball player. So we're about to open my first theater on Crenshaw in LA. And I asked the food buyer from, from Sony, I said, how many hot dogs do we have for the opening? So he's like, man, the same amount we gonna uh, give you is the same amount we have in suburban, our suburban theaters. We opened the theater on Friday. We sold out all the hot dogs that normally take a month to sell out in suburban, sold it out in one night. <laughs> Why? Because minorities, we're not gonna go to dinner in a movie. <laughs> We're going to have dinner where? At the movies. I can't hear you. <laughs> At the movies. So that's another reason my per caps were so high. You have to have an understanding of your customer base. And I know what urban consumers want. And uh, I deliver that. So because we were very successful with the Magic Johnson Theaters, I went up to Seattle because I saw this long line outside this coffee place called Starbucks. I'm like, man, what kind of coffee they serving in there? <laughs> so I said, I got to get in that line. I got to see what's going on. So I got in the line and, you know, waiting and waiting and waiting. And I finally got up there. And I don't drink coffee. I drink tea. So I said, man, let me have your best tea, whatever. I took a sip of that tea. I said, wow, no wonder. I said, man, that's the next successful thing that can happen in urban America. So I cold called Howard Schultz, CEO of uh, Starbucks, and said, look, I want to come up and see you. So I flew up to Seattle, and we had a meeting. And uh, thank God he was a basketball fan and <laughs> uh, season ticket holder of Seattle Supersonics. And we sat down and talked. And I told him the growth of his business would be through Urban America because, you know, Starbucks got a, a store. Man, they saturate the market, which is great. They dominate the market. And uh, I said, but there's none in Urban America, and we got this great spending power. And I knew that it would be successful in Urban America. He said, well, we don't do franchisees. I said, I'm not here to become one. I want to be your partner. I put up half the money. You put up half the money. So he said, well, I got to sell it to the board. Let's have a couple more meetings. So long story short, we had about four more meetings. And then he finally decided to come down and see how we manage my theaters. And this is really important to a lot of you young people out there. You got to make sure that what you're selling and what you tell people is going to be the truth, right? When, when they come and see what your business looks like, Everything that you told him is, is sure better look like that. So sure enough, he comes down on a Friday night, and thank God, Whitney Houston's first movie was coming out, Waiting to Exhale. <laughs> so I had about four or 5,000 African-American women wrapped around the corner trying to get in <laughs> to see this movie. So uh, Howard comes, we come around the corner, he's like, wow, man. He was amazed we had this many people waiting to see this movie. He got inside. The concession stand was just, I mean, we were making money like crazy because everybody was ordering something. And then finally the movie started. So we sat in one of my, my biggest house was 500 seats. And the movie got going about 20 minutes in. And every African-American woman in there thought they knew Whitney Houston personally, so they started talking to the screen. <laughs> Girl, why you still with him? <laughs> you should dump him. And so 
Howard grabs me out the theater, true story, and said, Irvin, I've never had a movie-going experience quite like this. And he said, you got the deal. So we, were gonna, we did three as a test. And this is where that word comes in, young people. So he gave me three to test. So I had to over-deliver with the three. So when I looked up, I said, okay, we got to tweak Starbucks just a little bit to fit in urban America. The coffee was great, but the dessert was not. We don't quite know what scones are, so. <laughs> I had to take the scones out of my Starbucks and put sweet potato pie, pound cake, socket to me cake, peach cobbler. They said, no way minorities would pay $3 for a cup of coffee. Well, we proved everybody wrong. My per caps were higher than his per caps. And uh, it went from building three to building 125. The multiple was already negotiated. <laughs> so, when the <laughs> so when my contract was up in terms of the number, 125, I sold them all back to Howard. And I walked away with a big smile on my face. <laughs> And so, uh, and he did too, because he says already in all the, interview, all the interviews that he's uh, been able to do after our partnership, he said how our, our stores really changed Starbucks, brought in a lot of minority managers, district managers, uh, employees. And so, uh, and now he's built now 500 to 1,000 stores in urban America, and it's, and it's great. So it's great for me to be the guy who, opened the door for Starbucks going into urban America. And we should clap for that because that's, that's a great thing. <clears throat> so it's still about over-delivering. See, if I had kept those scones in there, my per caps wouldn't have been four fifty nine. It wouldn't have been that high. So because I changed out those desserts. And then I also took out the Lawrence Welsh music that they play in <laughs> the regular Starbucks. And I put in Prince, Motown music, Earth, Wind and Fire, things that resonate with the urban consumer. So now if I got you sitting there and you made your first purchase and you're comfortable and you got your head moving and you got your favorite drink next to you, you're going to sit there long enough to make your second purchase. See, and then minorities, if we call a place, that's my place. Like, that's my restaurant. That's my burger place. Whatever it is, that's where we're going to go all the time. Because they've over-delivered to us. And you're the same way. And so that's why you have to over-deliver. And also stay in touch with that customer base in terms of asking them questions. Do you like this? Do you like that? We always stay in tune and in touch with our customer base to make sure we're doing the right thing. And that's why I've been successful as well. I hear you talking about <clears throat> diversity of perspective and mm -hmm. how important that was for you. There's been a focus recently on the lack of diversity within Silicon Valley and the tech industry in general. <clears throat> How does, how does that play into your investment and partnership de decisions? And also, how do you think about recruiting and retaining diverse talent now that you're head of your own organization? Well, the first one is, you know, when you think about Silicon Valley and you think about what, it's only 1% of engineers that are African-Americans and about 3%, I think, are Latinos. Uh, that's way too low. But they keep using that as an excuse where we can't find enough engineers who are minority. Okay, that's fine. But what about you have lawyers, accountants, the HR department. There's other areas that you can hire minorities who are qualified, right? And a lot of them sit on this campus too. 
and other campuses. So we not just we just don't want to be engineers. We can be, you know, we love to work at Google. We would love to work at work at Facebook and on and on and on. And so diversity starts at the top. If it's not a part of your DNA, it's not who you are. It's not going to happen. That's why I love Stanford. See, and we don't want a handout. We just want an opportunity. Now look at those two coaches. They just wanted the opportunity, and they're delivering, over-delivering. And that's all. We just ask for an opportunity. And I tell you, those who, look, you want to hire the way America looks. In the next 20 years, half of America, or, or even more than half of America, are going to be minorities. So the first comp companies that understand that and start hiring minorities now, they will understand how to really deal with them as not only employees, but also consumers. And so uh, for me, it's easy for me. You know, uh, I like to hire smart young people. Matter of fact, I got one of your own that worked for me. Stand on up. Yeah, Ryan. Yeah. <clears throat> And uh, Ryan, I tell you what's, what's great about Ryan. Ryan was here on the campus a couple years ago, and he was doing some internship work for us, right? And so that's when we were thinking about buying the Sparks. So we put Ryan on the Sparks deal. And it was Ryan's, uh, he analyzed the numbers. He came back to, to myself and said, you know, he thought at the number that we were going to pay for the Sparks, that it was going to be a good deal. If he had said, don't do the Sparks deal, I wouldn't have done the Sparks deal. So we got young, bright minds like Ryan in our company. And so, Stanford, you're producing some great, young, smart. Also, too, he's single, so any ladies out there? He <laughs> 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 <You> started clapping. <laughs> Um, and then once he analyzed that deal and broke it down for, for me, uh, I knew that I wanted him because he also, you have to have people skills to work for me too. It's not just being smart. I want somebody who can also go out and on behalf of our company represent us. And he does a wonderful job of that. And so uh, um, my brand is everything to me. And so I got to make sure that the thing that I protect is the brand. See, I have everything else. Sustainability. I have growth. I have all that now, right? But the one thing that could ruin it all is a tainted brand and a diluted brand. And so I want to make sure that I protect that brand. And that's why I hire people like Ryan who can not only protect the brand, but grow the brand and the bottom line all at the same time. And so uh, we're buying the Dodgers, that's sustainability. I have a $14 billion insurance company that I just bought uh, called Equitrust out of Iowa. That's our headquarters. We're gonna move that to Illinois. Um, it's doing game buster business, we're, we're growing it. And so, uh, so when I look at it, I have everything that I want now, right? I have, I was fighting for first respect because they didn't respect me when I first came in the boardrooms because they still looked at me as a basketball player. But that Starbucks deal changed all of that. See, I drove ROI. I took Howard's brand, it was already huge, but I took that brand to another level. It was the first company ever, Jay Leno, picked up a Starbucks cup live on TV and said, why are you charging those people that kind of money for a cup of coffee, right? And we all laughed, but Howard Schultz was happy. Like, wow, I was just on the Tonight Show and then cost me a dollar. Yeah. <laughs> you see what I'm saying? So we were able to grow the brand of Starbucks for free and... Um, also, at the, end of the line, at the end of the day, also uh, be able to grow the bottom line, too. And that's why that partnership was the one partnership that 
really got me everything that I wanted. And then I've had the number one real estate, uh, uh, when you think about fund in, in terms of an urban fund. So I did, we did 300 million, we did 600 million, our second fund and our third fund, we did a billion dollars. And then we had an equity fund with Ron Burkle's company, Ukaipa Johnson. So we, we went out and raised about 500 million. So that's when I bought a lot of the, uh, we bought about 20 radio stations, we bought Soul Train brand, on and on and on. With the real estate fund, if you think about the W in Austin, Texas, you think about the Hilton in Washington, D.C., all those things, all those properties we still own. And uh, the Transamerica building downtown Los Angeles, we used to own that. And so those are the type of properties that we invested in. And so uh, uh, it was really unique and special that I could go from the basketball court, dribbling that little basketball, to having a, a real estate fund, having an equity fund. And now I'm with Guggenheim, and uh, Mark Walter told me, you don't have to go out and raise money no more. We managed about $200 billion. Just come see us. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and I tell you, this is a quick story for some of you, because some of you are going to be disappointed. i got to stand up for a minute. Is that okay? Yeah. All right. I know I'm at Stanford and everything, so all these smart people, because I might be working for one of them one day. You don't mind me changing a little bit, Dean, do you? Okay, cool, because <laughs> I can't just sit down all the time. Um, Young people. So when I first went out to raise my first fund, I went up to CalPERS, right down the road from here. And they turned me down four times. And the last time the committee turned me down, they said, well, why haven't some other minority come to raise money and do what you're talking about doing? And I couldn't answer that question, right? I was up there to, to have them give me around $50 million to invest in uh, urban America. That was unheard of at that time. And so finally, I went up the, the time after that, the fifth time, and they finally said, you know what? We're going to give you the $50 million. And if you... I'm going to come back to that word. If you over-deliver with the 50 million, you can come back and get 100 more million. I bought a shopping center for 22 million. It was 40% occupied. I made that center 100% occupied. I resold that center for 48 million. Took the 26 back up to Sacramento and said, here you go. <laughs> and guess what happened? They start respecting me like a businessman. Now, a lot of you are going to get turned down five times like I did. Are you going to get back up and try again? Or are you going to go have your head down, disappointed, and not get up and try again? See, I knew I had a, a great business plan. I knew I had a great strategy, and I believed in it. That's why I kept going up to Sacramento. And finally, they said yes. And that's when I took off. So remember, you're going to get turned down. Somebody's not going to like your business plan. That's all right. You can tweak it. You can make adjustments to that. But keep going if you believe in it. And if you've done your homework and your research and you find that you have a good chance to be successful with your business, keep going. Never let anybody define who you can become and who you are. They said, oh, magic, just a point guard. No. <laughs> I was more than that. And now I'm proving it each and every day. Jack Dorsey just said, hey, magic, come on, join my board of square. I've been turning down boards left and right, and I finally believed in, I believe in him and what he's built. And so I, said, I finally said yes. Uh, but if I hadn't proven myself, right, 
uh, he would never come and ask me to join his board of Square. Okay. Okay. Back to you now. Thank you. See, that's how we do it at Stanford. We, you know. Yeah. Experiential learning. Every, Something I live by too. Young God. people write this down. Always be ready to adapt <laughs> and adjust. I'm serious. Market change, you got to be ready to adapt and adjust. And we did that uh, with my real estate fund. We had built some condos. The market just, remember, banks wasn't loaning, no more money. And everybody was in trouble, right? And, but quickly we said, oh, wait a minute. We can change to a renter's model just that fast. And guess what happened? It didn't affect our bottom line. We still were successful because we were smart enough to say, okay, it's not going to work because nobody can get loans, but we can go to a renter's model and it can still work for us. So be, make sure you quick and nimble enough to say, you know what? I can adapt and adjust to what's going on in the marketplace today. I can change my business or tweak my business to make it still work. You're talking about resiliency throughout that, and I want to shift to a more uh, personal issue before okay. we turn to questions, mm -hmm. and that is your health. Mm -hmm. And you contracted HIV at the height of your superstardom in basketball and overnight you kind of you became the face of a disease that at the time people thought was a gay white man's disease. Can you talk about the experience of having to become a leader in a community that you might have otherwise never been associated with? Yeah well first it was tough it was tough because uh, in the beginning um, getting that phone call, come to the doctor's office, we're in Utah, fly all the way home from Utah, couldn't play in the game. I didn't know what was wrong, what was going on. And um, to walk into the doctor's office and him to tell me I have HIV, it was just devastating. I mean, I'm, I'm talking about I was on the floor devastated. Um, and it took me hours just to come to grips with what he had just said, right? And then what was more devastating than that was I had just got married. My wife was pregnant, so now i got to drive home to tell her I have HIV. And more than thinking about myself, I was thinking about her and my, my, my uh, baby at that time. And um, I tell you, I never thought, you know, and I had did everything right, I thought, you know, just... I, I was married to the game. I put in maximum effort, and, and I'm, now, boom, this happens, right? And I married a woman that I met on Michigan State campus and that I've always wanted to marry, my best friend. And all those things are going through your mind as you're driving home to now face the toughest ch challenge in my life. More than Michael, more than Larry. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm glad I can laugh about it now, I'll tell you. But it was uh, when I hit the door, she knew something was wrong. She knew it. And so I sat her down, and I began to tell her I had HIV, and she cried like a baby. And the thing that makes it tough, young people, your mistake not only hurts you, but those who love you, it hurts them too. They are affected by your mistakes. And um, here she is, been nothing but a great wife, great friend, and, and I put putting her at risk and putting her in this situation. And so, uh, you know, as we're talking about it and I'm trying to console her, and then I told her, I understand if you want to leave me, you know. And then she hit me so hard upside my head. <laughs> and she said, we're going to beat this together. This is the only time I knew that I was going to have a chance to live. Because if Cookie had a left, 
I don't think I would be here because I needed her as a support system, you know, and, you, and that was a difficult time. So you need the ones that love you to help you through your toughest moments. And so um, I'm so happy she stayed and supported me. And then we got the best news about a couple weeks later, she was okay, the baby was okay after the doctors ran the test. So I've been in the face of this disease now for 24 years. She and also so, the person who encouraged you to, to speak out and, and help to educate everyone about it. Well, that's disease. a great, great question. Great question. Uh, we went back and forth. Once we found out her status, we went back and forth on if we should go public or not. So I met with a lady who was living with AIDS at the time, Elizabeth Glazier, changed my whole life. She was dying at that time. And she told me, Irvin, I want you to become the face of the disease. They need a face, it needs a face, and you will be perfect. You gotta go public. It's gonna help the world. And um, she said there's some great drugs coming down the pipeline, and she was right. At that time, it was only one drug at that time, AZT. And so um, I'm glad she was there for me as well. And then I promised her that I would become the face and I would do a lot of different things to help those who are living with it and also to educate people. And she has a great foundation named after her and doing great work too. Um, and so uh, Cookie and I, after meeting with her, decided to go public at that time. And, um, and now you look at the numbers, there's a million, over a million people living with HIV in, in this country, but one out of eight don't even know they have it. There's a lot of people walking around right now that don't know they have HIV. And then it's affected the, the black and brown community in a big way. Um, when you think about the numbers, especially uh, the numbers of blacks in terms of 55% of men, 45% black women. So it's really important that we still get our, go out and get tested. Also go back for your results. Now you can get it tested in your own home now. Uh, now instead of one drug, there's 30 drugs. That's why I'm living today. You think about uh, the drugs are so much better today, easy to take today. Um, there's still a fear of minorities going to find out if they have HIV or not. That's, that's been really hurting our community in a big way. And so um, I fight against discrimination, against those who are living with HIV. I go out and educate people, and that's what I do. That's, this is my life. And so I love what I do. I love you know, uh, going out, talking about HIV and AIDS, and also helping people. And uh, uh, that's what I'm all about. And then when I joined uh, President Bush AIDS Commission back at that time, this is the father, I remember I went to Boston and they had a hospice, 30 beds. I walked in, only one bed was, uh, uh, one patient was in a, uh, one of the bedrooms. And I was like, what's wrong with the other? 29 rooms, they had to take you through a process for you to get a, a room. Like all these people who need a room and, and they had to go through a process to get one. It takes like a year or two just to get cleared. And that, just that day I quit. I said, this is not right. There's people who need rooms who have to be on the street and we take them through this long process and so I quit that day and I built the Magic Johnson Foundation and we've uh, already given out over f almost about $15 million to a different AIDS organization. We've uh, tested over 40,000 minorities. Uh, so this is what I do every day, I love it, you know. And not just the HIV and AIDS side, we have 120 students on scholarship right now, colleges all over the country. Uh, we built 16 technology centers and uh, because a lot of minorities can't afford to have a computer in their home. 
So we give them access to one. And so these are the things that we do every single day. And then the last thing I just started was Magic Johnson Bridgescape Academies because right now the problem we have in urban America is so many dropouts right now. So we're building these drop-back-in centers for kids can get off the street, get their high school diploma. And it's so great that we've graduated 400 students so far. And guess what? A lot of them are in college right now. So we should clap for that. Okay, so we should go to questions, you know. <laughs> we, yeah, we don't have much time left, but if you just want to raise your hand, uh, the people with the mics will come down and yeah. find you, and we'll start with a question from Well, Twitter. we got to take five or so, you know. We can't just run off. I came all the way here from L.A. That's a long way. <laughs> and not answer some questions now, you know. And Three. my Dodgers are in the playoff. Don't be booing up here, but Giant fans. <laughs> All right, go ahead. Go ahead. First question from Twitter. What was the hardest lesson you learned when you transitioned from basketball to business? Um, I thought it would be easier because I was Magic Johnson. But actually, it was harder. Uh, Tim Banks turned me down. Besides, Cal Purse turned me down. I was looking to grow, and I used up just about a lot of my income to get me to a level, but now I wanted to go to another level, and I wanted that growth, and I needed some big money, uh, and so I went to the banks, and 10 of them turned me down, and then I, I said, well, if 10 turned me down, I'm going to make sure everybody turned me down, so I went to the next bank, and they said yes, and uh, it's really funny. What's your name? Gracie, it's really funny, right? So now, Gracie, uh, after the 11th bank said yes, and owning the Dodgers, all this stuff, all them 11 banks are knocking on my door saying, oh, I mean, 10 banks saying, oh, we'll give you as much line of credit as you want, you know, on and on and on. But I'm a loyal guy, so I stay with who, who, who got me here. And uh, so, again, you're going to get turned down sometime, but keep on going because somebody may say yes. And so I was blessed that somebody said yes and believed in me and my strategy and believed in urban America, too. So thank you. That, that was the hardest thing. Who got the next one? Right oh, right here. Okay. Hey, uh, my name's George. I have a question. Uh, with the Equilife deal, your, your Equitrust. Equitrust deal, mm -hmm. your organization runs the largest uh, black-owned insurance company in America. Mm -hmm. How do you see minority-owned financial institutions changing the way American business is done? Mm -hmm. Well, I think, first of all, we got to be successful. That's number one. You know, always remember that you can only change things when you're successful. And... Uh, um, I think more minorities will have access to capital so that they could build their, their, their own businesses because I'm successful. And uh, I don't think that we're going to change financial institutions, but it, it's in terms of um, minorities owning a financial institution. But I think what, what, what I can do is open the door for other minorities to have an opportunity to become business people, right? You see what I'm saying? And so uh, right now we're seeing that everywhere. If you look at the hip hop community, who do they credit for changing their mindset on being becoming businessmen? They credit me. And athletes do the same thing because I opened the door and, and also changed their mindset and attitude toward just being a, a artist or just being an athlete. Now we know that we can go from the basketball court to the boardroom. So I think uh, Equitrust will allow others to say, hey, there's an opportunity to own a financial institution, hopefully. If not, just, uh, again, just being a pioneer for, for minorities to be able to know that you can be successful as a, a businessman or a businesswoman. So uh, um, I'm sitting in a great spot in a great position. I don't take it lightly. And... Um, um, just like being a minority in baseball, it's great. You know, we changed the Dodgers. We were, um, I don't know where we were. We wasn't in the top ten in attendance before. 
Now, for the three years that we've owned the team, we've been number one in attendance in MLB, over 42,000 a night. We've uh, enhanced the fan experience. We've changed the team, and we've won our division three years in a row. So we've changed everything, and now we're, what, the sixth most valuable, Forbes said we're the sixth most valuable France, sports franchise in the world behind three soccer teams and, of course, uh, the Yankees and Cowboys. And we'll take that all day. <laughs> and so uh, the things that uh, we've been able to do has been great. So um, we'll see what happens in terms of financial institution, but uh, I'm just happy that uh, uh, I have a successful business and that we're going to grow that business. We just sold another business that uh, we were into, uh, I was into, which was uh, Simply Health. Uh, we built that business over three years, uh, Medicaid, Medicare business. My partner and I, Mike Fernandez, we took a business that we bought, only had 17,000 members, now about 300,000 members, and we sold it. We grew it to 300,000 members. And we just sold it to Aetna for about a billion dollars. So uh, uh, I've been doing a lot of great things, and uh, this is what I do every day. Uh, it's nice to not be in those hot pants I used to wear, and I wear suits now. <laughs> remember the short shorts we used to wear? Johnny, you remember them shorts, man? <laughs> they were, I mean, I don't know how we got in them things. <laughs> I think it was some on this right side. Here. Oh, that this young man right there? Okay, the yeah. go ahead. Uh, my name's Aaron. I grew up in Inglewood down the street from the Forum, so this is special for me. Kari, you're killing it. Oh. Um, <laughs> she is, Kara's too. Let's awesome. give her a hand, it. too. She is killing it. So my question is, can you talk about the conflict or lack thereof between helping a community that you came from, that you grew up with, you know, a socioeconomically disadvantaged community and also wanting to make money yourself? Mm -hmm. Well, there's no conflict. And, and I'll tell you why there's no conflict. Minorities want me to be successful, right? We were short. When you think about retail options, we were short retail options. Minorities, we were driving an hour sometimes 45 minutes outside our community just to shop and go to a grocery store, to go to the movies. And so um, what I was able to do was understand what we wanted because we were already driving to get it, but it was outside our community. And what I just did, I just brought it right to us, right? And minorities understand if I'm successful, then they have a chance to be successful. And so... Uh, I didn't do anything to, um, it'd be different if I was, the prices were, you know, high or I outpriced myself in terms of to uh, the urban consumer. But I hired people from the community. But first thing I did was train them to do their job. Mm, I'm going to say that one more time. I trained them to do their job. And then you get the retention that you're looking for, right? And also I made it a... a a workplace that they have fun working at. And that, that again, gets you the retention that you're looking for as well. Uh, my Fridays was the hottest place to work at and to go to, right? My TGF Fridays that I used to own right there. You been there, yep. right? <laughs> and, you know, you, man, a Laker game came on or Dodger game, you couldn't even get in the place, right? Packed, right? I was the first Fridays in the nation to ever serve Don Perignon, Chris Dahl, eight, you know, out of high-end liquor. I was the first one, right? They copied my model, right? And so, because that's what my customer base wanted. But the reason I'm saying that is that um, now in urban America or Inglewood or wherever, you have a chance to now in your own community get a salad, get dinner, go get Starbucks coffee, and you didn't have those options before. So I look at it as... I'm putting people to work, and now that dollar, our problem in urban America, the dollar only touches three hands. In suburban America, one dollar touches about 20 hands. That's why it's able to grow. So I tried to make sure a dollar could touch at least 10 hands in urban America by putting a business there, hiring people from the community. Now they'll spend their money where? In the community. Now the community grows. And so, uh, so... I'm happy about what I've been doing. I'm also, uh, I was able to put people that have good paying jobs, right? 
those district managers, uh, those, those uh, managers, they make good money. Um, and then a brother like Ryan getting ready to be a millionaire, so it's going to be cool. <laughs> I told him on the way here, I said, but man, if that deal works, you're going to be a millionaire. He said, okay. <laughs> That's the first time he ever took the glasses off and like, oh, man. He started sweating, Stanford. He started sweating. So, but uh, that's my, also my job, is to make as many minorities millionaires as I can. And so uh, we're on the right track already. I've, I've already uh, been able to do that with a lot of people so far. One of the people I hired went to UCLA. Don't be booing. She went to UCLA Business School, right, Eight, 19 years ago. So she became my receptionist. And I told her, if you st stick with me, it was just her and I at that time. Right? We're going to do great things together. I said, don't worry about this is not the job you wanted out of college. So guess what? Now she's a millionaire. Now she's my COO running my company. Went, went from the receptionist out front. Now she's making the decision. So that's what can happen. And a lot of you don't get caught up in what job you get coming out. You know you're smart. Sometimes it's good just to get in, get the knowledge, and then grow from there. Okay? That, I, 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 I got to have her because she's short. Come on up on stage. Come on on stage. Come on. Uh, but yeah, bring the phone. Right. No, you got to hand it to somebody. Don't put it in your pocket. Yeah, set it up. All right. Nice. Come on. Come on. Come on, smile. All right, hold, hold. Turn around. Back to back. All right. Actually, here at Stanford. Right, um, put the mic up. And um, I kind of just wanted to ask you you talk a lot about how powerful you are in the business community, but given how strong of an influence you are to a lot of minorities and just individuals all over the place, I kind of wanted to ask you what sort of initiative you are kind of like hoping to emerge yourself in with respect to obesity, mm -hmm. given that a lot of minorities are, you know, facing mm -hmm. this issue. Mm -hmm. And a lot of basketball players and just athletes in general market a lot of their products mm -hmm. and they're not the healthiest per se it's a lot of sodas and mm -hmm. things like that and mm -hmm. I kind of wanted to ask you since you have such a big impact and so, so much power like you're saying and you want to empower those people mm -hmm. um, do you see yourself kind of you know engaging in sort of any I don't know business opportunities mm -hmm. with respect to like making those like culturally appropriate I guess foods or beverages mm -hmm. more healthy, per se? Okay. Well, two things. First, let's start with myself first. Um, two years ago, I was about 40 pounds heavier, right? And I knew that I was snacking on the road. So I said, I got to make a change. So, no, I'm serious. I got to make a change. So I started putting nuts and fruit in front of me instead of those chips and things, and I dropped about 40 pounds, right? Then... I own a company called Sodexo Magic. So we provide food for colleges, school systems, uh, corporations. So we have, uh, I, I do uh, Disneyland and Disney World. Yay! <laughs> uh, Mickey and Minnie eat my food. And uh, Toyota, their headquarters, uh, John Deere, Allstate Insurance, uh, Drexel University, on and on and on. So now we're starting to see now even corporations, school systems, colleges, they want healthier options for students, for their employees, and so on. Um, I think before um, I was not mindful of what you said, but since I changed my diet myself, and now I get up every morning at 4 o'clock, I'm in the gym by 5, uh, hour cardio, lift weights for an hour. So now I can talk about it because it's the truth, you know. I'm living it. Before I couldn't talk about it, but I'm living it now. So it's very important that uh, um, we do eat healthier because uh, African Americans, we're dying earlier than any other group of people. And so we got to make some changes when you think about our diet 
And uh, also, too, it has to start at home, too, you know. And, uh, and then that's when I was talking to the young man about uh, Harlem hadn't had a grocery store for over 40 years. So I put Starbucks there. I put my theater there in Harlem. That's when Pathmark finally built uh, a supermarket in Harlem. Now we got fresh fruit, vegetables. See, that's the problem we were having in urban America. We just didn't have the opportunities to buy things that were fresh and, and healthy for us. And, uh, and now we're hoping Whole Foods come into urban communities and others, Trader Joe's, whoever it is, uh, so we can have those type of options, you know. And so, uh, yes, I, I'm promoting it. And I'm actually going to invest in a company that uh, providing that type of food option. I can't tell you much about it right now. You know? <laughs> you know, we're not there yet. Ryan, we're not there yet, right? Yeah, Ryan, Ryan has, can I, can I brag about him? <laughs> yeah, just keep your eyes on him, the guy with the glasses. <laughs> yeah. He has bought me lately about three deals. We just invested in a, a company called Jobwell that's uh, supplying minority talent to, Latina yes, you, you say that. Go Latina ahead. recruitment and just minority recruitment in general. You heard about it. I heard about them. I signed up. Man, <laughs> tell me some. I love it. No, no wonder we're friends. We're friends. I follow you on Twitter, actually. No, um, but Ryan has done just a tremendous job. And, and if we can do me one favor, because when it's your own, and they become successful. You always got to feel proud because, see, guess what? You're the next one. And if you don't bless somebody else, how can you be blessed? Right? And that's what I'm all about. You know, I'm blessed to have a great wife. I'm blessed to have great three kids, uh, two grandchildren now. But also, I'm so happy that I saw the talent in this young man and that you guys really shaped and mold it into, he's going to be awesome. So if you can do me a favor, there's two people you need to give a standing ovation. This beautiful lady, she's so smart and talented. Come on, come on, come on, come on. That's right. She did a wonderful <laughs> job. Come on, man. Thank you. And this one, too. Come on. So, listen, I came from a very poor family. Sometimes we had the peanut butter, but we didn't have the jelly. Sometimes we had something to drink, and sometimes we didn't. Sometimes, you know, it was tough. Six sisters, three brothers. But the one thing I never had was poor dreams. Even though I grew up poor, I didn't have poor dreams. And one thing I never lacked was confidence in myself. I always believed in me. Always. And the one thing that I could control is my work ethic and my work habits. First one in the gym, last one to leave. I'm the first one at work, last one to leave. It doesn't change. If you want to be successful, you got to get there early. You got to outwork your competition. And then get your husband or wife, boyfriend, girlfriend to understand and buy into your dream. That's one thing Cookie did. I said, baby, tonight I know it's not a real date, but I got to take you to the theater, <laughs> to the Magic Johnson Theater. When we get there, you go to your seat. I got to kiss the babies for two hours and hug everybody that came in. Then when we leave, we got to go by Starbucks and sit in the parking lot and watch how many people come into the store. <laughs> That's going to be our date. But guess what? She was sitting right there with me. The hard work paid off. 
five championships, led the Lakers to nine finals in 12 years. Right? What a run, right? Then here, the business world. Now I was struggling to get money and capital. Now I don't have to worry. If I need to raise a billion dollars tomorrow, which we're starting a new fund, I, can't, I wish I could tell you about it. But we already got two billion committed. We haven't even gone out. Because I got a proven track record. <laughs> Thanks. You've been listening to the View from the Top podcast, a production of Stanford Graduate School of Business, based on the Dean Speaker Series. This interview was conducted by Kara Hollis of the MBA class of 2016. Our theme music was composed by Lily Sloan. Follow us on social media at Stanford GSB. You can find more episodes of our show wherever you get your podcasts.